You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. If you are a child here, you can go to the back and get a, a little bag from there with, I think it's coloring paper and activities for you. <coughs> well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's uh, good to see you and be here. It feels more cozy to be in this place than in the big gymnasium. Uh, before we start, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Verses 42 to 47, we're going to be in the end of chapter 2. So we are in our series of the book of Acts, and we're walking through the birth of the church, and it, this is challenging us to uh, rely more on God and rely on His Holy Spirit. And I, I just love what God has been teaching me through reading the book of Acts, and I hope you do too. Uh, so today we come to the, uh, to the last part of it, and let me go ahead and pray first, and then we'll, we'll jump in. God, thank you for your awesome blessing to, that you give us as a church to gather, uh, uh, the blessing of gathering, uh, the blessing of being able to, to meet weekly, encourage each other, worship you, pray, <clears throat> learn from your word. I pray that today you would continue to shape us and help us be more like you. I pray that the preaching of your word would encourage us and also challenge us and that you would bring salvation and that everything we do would be to your glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. <coughs> so the, uh, the, the passage that we're going to read today um, is a, a little bit controversial, not, not so much theologically. Um, and before I, uh, but let me just explain a little bit more. So if you don't know, uh, when you approach the Bible, the Bible is not one book. The Bible is 66 different books, and each one of those books has uh, different styles, literary, literary styles. And the one that we're reading right now, for instance, is called a narrative. So it's just uh, a book that describes something that happens, and it narrates how the church became how the apostles preached the gospel. Remember, we're in Acts. Acts is the second volume of the Gospel of Luke. It was written by Luke, who was a, a physician, a doctor, who was a, a, a companion of Paul, <clears throat> who was also another uh, apostle. And so the controversy is that when you read a book of the Bible that is a narrative, uh, we are told and this is true, that what you read is not necessarily a prescription. So it's not something that you're being commanded to do. It's more of a description of what happened. So uh, the approach to narratives is uh, as, a, as a description. So we learn from what we see, but it's not like the Ten Commandments of some of the epistles that straight up tell us, this is what you should do, this is how you should behave, this is the correct theology, or this is the correct interpretation. Uh, so... Uh, this is a book that's a narrative. So our approach is we are looking at what's been described and we learn from that. And when you approach it like that, some people say we are not necessarily to take it as a command. or We're not necessarily to imitate what we see, but rather gather principles from it. Yet, I have a little bit of a 
different approach when, I, when it comes to the book of Acts and especially Luke. If you remember, Luke, the physician, is writing this for somebody. Do you remember who that is? It's Theophilus. He's uh, compiling information for someone who was a person of higher rank uh, somewhere in that area. We don't know exactly where he lived. Uh, some people think he was in uh, Antioch. But he actually tells us, Luke tells us, why he wrote this book. And what I want to say today is that this book, Luke, uh, very, uh, Volume 1 and uh, Acts, Volume 2, has the purpose, or its purpose is to teach as well. Why? Because if you read Luke 1, he actually says, Luke tells Theophilus, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Right? So, He's trying to reaffirm something that was taught to Theophilus through this narrative. So the narrative has the purpose of reaffirming a teaching. It's almost like, see what they told you? Look at this. I'm just reaffirming what you've been taught. So the idea is to also, in a way, teach. So the reason why I'm saying this is because there is, when you read this, this specifically this part of Scripture, uh, the end of chapter 2, some theologians say that this is just a description of how the church began. But we're not supposed to necessarily imitate this part of Scripture. Um, we can take elements from it, but it's hard to apply them today. And that is true if we fully engage with this part as a descriptive part, right? And that's true. We can learn from it, but we, can't, we don't necessarily have to apply it. But my argument is, I think we can learn from it, and I think we can apply it, and I think it actually means, or is, uh, its purpose is to instruct us. And <clears throat> let me just tell you, right up front, some of the controversy has to do with the part that talks about money. Okay? So we're going to talk about a section of Scripture that deals with money and positions. And some theologians say that, again, this was just the honeymoon phase of church. So this is the church in its most innocent uh, moment. And that we should no uh, longer necessarily aim to live like that because we can't. Interestingly enough, uh, the theologians that argue with this position come from some very wealthy countries. On the other hand, if you read another set of theologians or scholars, they say that this is the perfect example of how the church should function. They actually say this is the church in its prime state. And that is how the church should look today. Coincidentally, again, many of these theologians come from countries that suffer from economic struggles and widespread poverty. So I want to I want to I want to offer to you uh, the reading of the scripture and my position is going to be more towards the second position. I don't necessarily fully agree with the first position and I think it's interesting because it actually when we see the larger picture uh, it calls the wealthy 
to, in a way, surrender or give some of their possessions, and that is hard to do. And I think that that is part of the filter that some of us have as we approach this, uh, this text. If you look at it from the side of someone who's in poverty, this brings just hope, and it brings joy to them because of their situation. And um, that's what I, I wanted to clarify before I address this text. So the text is Acts chapter 2. Verses 42 to 47. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I've titled this sermon that the Holy Spirit changes our priorities. And the first thing I want to say is that the Holy Spirit changes our priorities by putting the community above the individual. Remember, what just happened is that the disciples, the, the 12 disciples of Jesus, with a new guy that was substituting Judas, his name was Matthias, and the women, a total of 120 people were just, they were just together. They were not even praying. The Bible, if you read Acts 2, they were just together. And this wind or this sound came upon them, and they were filled with the Spirit, and they started speaking in tongues. And then Peter gets up, a multitude gathers, and he starts preaching to them. And this is what happened after uh, Peter preached his sermon. So this is not something they're doing on their own. This is not their strategy. They didn't plot to do this. This is actually what happened because of the Holy Spirit. So what I want to say is the Holy Spirit changes our priorities by putting the community above the individual. So these new converts, these new Christians began to do uh, things that require them to be with other people more often probably that, that they were used to than they were used to. They began to prioritize activities of this new community that just started. They actually began to see each other as part of a body or a church or a family. The first community was not an individualistic community. The first community understood that there was something larger than themselves, and they added themselves to this now we know it's the church, the body, and they prioritize that above themselves. Let me give you some, uh, some examples of what, the, what this text tells us that they were doing. Uh, one of them, the first one that we see is that they were devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. For us, as a church, this would mean that we devote ourselves to Scripture, right? Back then, they didn't have the New Testament. Now we have it. Back then, they had the teaching of the apostles plus the Old Testament. So for us, as a church, what we can learn from this is that we should 
also devote ourselves to the teaching of Scripture or the learning from Scripture, the Bible. And they call it the teaching of the apostles because they are the ones who primarily or mostly wrote uh, some of the Scriptures that we have today. So as a church today, I would like for us to be challenged to learn from and to know our, our Bibles, to have a devotion, a desire for the Word of God. This is important. This is important because from the beginning, and we're going to read about this later in Acts, strange teachings started to pop out everywhere. And there was one way to avoid all these strange teachings or false doctrines. And, what, and it was and continued to be to remain faithful and to know and understand the Word of God, the Bible. In fact, if you remember, we are called Protestants, right? Do you know why? Because we protested something a long time ago, almost 500 years ago. We protested a system that told us that if you wanted to go to heaven or somebody else, you, you, you wanted to send someone else in heaven, you can pay money. You could, you could use coins to get them out of the purgatory and go to heaven. And this institution was heavily trying to build some of the most amazing temples and churches and cathedrals around the world. And they actually built a city with all this money that was coming from all over the world by selling indulgences. And we protested that. The Protestants raised their hand through one man who actually read the Bible. His name was Martin Luther. He protested. He said, no, that's not what the Bible says. And he raised a hand and wrote 95 complaints, no, sorry, theses, and and that's how it all started. That's why we we're called Protestants, because, because we read the Bible, we dedicated ourselves to the apostles' teachings or the Scripture. Then we raised our hands and we said, no, we can't do that. And that's something that we will see later in Acts chapter 17. There was a church in a city called Berea, and they were doing this. They were checking everything that Paul was saying against Scripture. Back then was the Old Testament, and if it matched, they were, okay, good, keep going, Paul. If it didn't match, then they probably didn't hear him. Thankfully, it matched. But what I want to say is we need to be in community, prioritizing the learning as a community, as something we do together. And together, you should not take whatever I say for granted. You should not listen to a pastor because he has a title or because he went to a certain school. You should not listen to me or anyone. You should listen to the Bible. But before you do that, you need to learn and know the Bible. And that's something that these individuals devoted themselves to. They were constantly doing that. Another thing they did, and again, they did it together, was they attended, attended the temple, and they gathered in the temple, and they also gathered in each other's homes. This is something that, from the beginning, we see in Scripture. The first Christians never stopped attending the temple. Then later on, this was a Jewish temple. But for the Gentiles, later on, they started gathering in churches or house churches, and they devoted themselves to that as well. And that's something that we also need to prioritize as a church. I know this sounds harsh to say in an individualistic society, but Christianity is not about what you do just by yourself. 
Christianity is a team sport. We are supposed to be with each other. It's something that we do all together. The learning is all together. The worshiping, the coming to the temple is all together. Unfortunately, we live in a society where Christianity is, oh, I'm worshiping while I'm taking a shower. I'm having my devotional on the way to work. I'm studying because I'm reading a po- or I'm listening to a podcast. And it becomes, it becomes about what you do and how you grow and what you like and what you don't like and your favorite theologians. And now you have a plethora, a menu of so many different places. You can choose whatever you want to learn. But the emphasis in the church is community, is we should do this weekly, constantly, together. And this is something we need to remember. Our priorities, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, switch from what I want and what's convenient to me to what the body needs and what my other brother feels or thinks. They practice the sacraments. The, when, when, when this text mentions breaking the bread, which mentions it twice, it not only impli- implies that they were having meals together, which they did, it also implied that they were having communion together. They were re- uh, uh, doing what Jesus told them to do, to celebrate communion, to remember that he was, he was crucified and that he resurrected, and they were doing this together. And then they practiced the baptism. In fact, a verse before that, we saw that 3,000 people became baptized in one day. And this is something, all of these are not things that you can do on your own. You cannot baptize yourself. Please don't do that. It doesn't count. You need another person to have baptism. You need someone else to have communion. Communion means community. The word for that is koinonia. But it, for us, it's something that means a common unity, a common goal. We are also learning and seeing that this new community that dedicated themselves not only to the teaching of the apostles, but also to prayer. They prayed together. And in fact, we're going to see in the next coming uh, uh, chapters that they did all, pray, all night prayers. They were constantly praying. It didn't mean that each individual was going out in their own house, in their own car, praying. That's not what it meant. In fact, as Christians in this uh, individualistic Western society, we tend to think like that. Every time we think of prayer, we're like, yeah, I didn't pray today. Oh, yeah, I need to, I need to get up earlier, and I need to pray. And, I, and, and, and that's a good emphasis, but it's not the church's emphasis or the Bible's emphasis. The Bible was written to the church in Philippi, the church. The Bible was written to the church in Rome, in Colossae, in Ephesus, in different cities. There were communities of Christians that did this together. They worship together. You can put your tunes and you can put Hillsong or uh, whatever is your favorite uh, music in your home. But that's just one element. We are called to worship together. We were constantly, we need to constantly be in prayer together, worshiping together, uh, celebrating communion together, attending the church together, and also each other's homes. This is important. From the beginning, the church was both inclusive and they 
gathered as one in one place in the temple, but at the same time, they spread in different houses. So this dichotomy in Christianity today that should we be more emphasize, emphasizing more like people's lives or house churches or community groups, or should we emphasize more Sunday and the... No, it's both. This is what we see from the beginning, both. And then... They were generous towards the church. They were selling everything they had and bringing it to the church. We don't have that specific part in this text, the, the bringing it to church, but Acts 4 and Acts 5 give us some clarity on how exactly they did it. Some people take this to say, you can, you can just grab your money and choose who you're going to give to. It's all right. This idea of a centralized location where you bring your money is not biblical. Well, if you are basing it off on Acts 2 only, you would be right. The problem is that if you read Acts 4 and 5, you will see how this happened. And how this happened in Acts 4 and Acts 5 is that everyone who sold their possessions brought them where? To the feet of the apostles. And then it was distributed. Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5 three times mentioned that people sold their positions and brought them to the feet of the apostles. And in fact, in Acts chapter, in Acts chapter, chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, remember them? They come, and the reason why they engage in a conversation with Peter is because they place the money that they supposedly sold their land for before the apostles' feet. And that's how they start a conversation. The generosity that they uh, practice was also in a community. It was with other people. And then the last verse in this, even though it doesn't mention explicitly evangelism, it implies evangelism because it says that God was adding through, I uh, was, was adding to the church those who were being saved. And God didn't do it by himself. God uses people to bring other people to church. That's how it's always been. That's how it will always be. So when, when, when uh, Luke is telling us, that God, telling us that God was adding people to the church, what he means is that these people were constantly sharing their faith. And through that, they were being added to the church more people. So these people gather for evangelism, they gather in the temple, they gather in each other's homes, they practice the sacraments, they worship, they pray, they were generous together. This is what real community looks like. Believers together as one participate in the life of the church. They did life inside and outside of the church. They lived on mission together. They were growing in Christ together. They were challenging each other. They were sharing positions. And that's how community looks like. And I believe that <clears throat> we love talking about community. But the problem is that in this society, we need to make a little bit of a clarification. Community is not an event that you do on a schedule once or twice a week. That is not community. That is an event that you promotes community. But if you are think when I, when I say community, and if your brain goes to Sunday or community group, that is just the smallest part of community. 
when the Bible talks about community, it talks about day by day, they were breaking their bread, they were praying, they were encouraging each other, they were learning together, they were doing evangelism together, they were worshiping together. That is community. And in this part of, part of the world, I feel like there's an overemphasizing of community as something that we do as like, let's just hang out, let's just do life together, that's community. And we enjoy that. That's awesome. We should do that. But then we ignore the fact that we're learning together, the fact that we're praying together, the fact that we should be encouraging and challenging each other, the fact that we're evangelizing together. We need to, we need to add those elements because that's what real community is. Our community is not just hanging out. Our community is doing the Christian thing together. Inside the church, we're doing community right now, and outside of the church. And I want to tell you, this is not something we're going to do on our own. This is something that the Holy Spirit makes us, helps us to do. The Holy Spirit changes our priorities from socializing to real community. From what blesses me to what blesses the people around me. It puts the community above the individual. Another thing that uh, the Holy Spirit changes is that it changes our priorities by putting people above time. And this is another thing that we need to learn. You need to remember that the Bible and, and especially uh, the cultural elements of what we read right now, the first uh, hearers of these letters or, or these uh, texts did not filter things the way we filter things. They didn't have tight schedules like we have today. They didn't have church maybe in the exact same way we have them. It was a, a more communal society that understood some of the things that is hard for us to understand. And uh, for us, when we talk about community, we need to also address the issue of time. If you notice, the, the first word that is used here is that they devoted themselves and, and this word devoted means several things, but it implies time consumed by an activity. They were constant. They persevered. They persisted. They did it frequently. They spent time on it and usually sacrificial time with other believers. So the Holy Spirit changes our priorities from, in our society, prioritizing our time over people to now prioritizing people over time. And when I read this, sometimes it's exhausting, and I know we can't fully do it the way they did it, but we have to extract this and say, you know what, I need to sacrifice my time sometimes for others. Actually, frequently. And I understand that today we have to be careful, we have to be aware of burnout, we have to be aware of everything we do, but the issue here is they were not doing this on their own. They were not doing this in their own strength. They were doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. They were not stressed about it. It wasn't one more thing in their agenda. It was something they were doing naturally out of love for others. And they were sacrificing time. Learning takes time. Praying takes time. Worshiping takes time. Going to the temple takes time. Sharing and preparing a meal takes time. Selling your possessions takes time. Distributing the possessions takes time. Receiving new converts, all of that takes time. And these were activities that took from their lives. 
And we need to be reminded that we need to sacrifice our time for the sake of others as well. In Scripture, in the New Testament, and also in the Old Testament, the Bible or, the, uh, or Israel in the Old Testament were called the household of God or the family of God or the people of God. And when this church was born, they resembled precisely that, a family. And we are a family. We are the family of God. We are the household of God. And I believe that what we are seeing and reading about here are, is a family just doing family stuff together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how do we act with our family? Do we just meet once a week for an hour and a half? Do we have specific times to do this and that? Or do we just do life together and we do everything together and, and we just sacrifice our time for each other? Now, I understand that this could be taken in a very radical way in which you would just spend zero time with your family and never rest. And I know for a fact that that's not going to be the error that we're going to make because we live in an individualistic society. This is the society that will tell you, you better care for yourself or nobody else will care for you. So that I don't have to tell you. That's automatically plugged in your brain. We live in America, the land of the free. I do what I want, whenever I want, on my schedule. You're not going to, you know what I'm saying. That is not the mistake that we're going to make as a church. The mistake that America is going to make is the mistake of being too private, too close, too far, and too guarded. That's the mistake that we're going to make. And we need to understand that when we read this, we see the opposite of that, and it's hard for us to understand it. We see a family doing life together. These families maybe were bored together. Maybe they confronted each other together. They had arguments. They, they, they were doing all kinds of different things. And this is what we need to continue to do. We need to understand that we belong to each other. I know this is hard to understand sometimes, but we belong to each other. Romans 12, 4 to 5 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so, though many, we are one body in Christ, and individually, listen to this, members of one another. We're members of one another. We need one another. We are called to love one another. To the point that we actually put our needs behind or after someone else's needs. That's what, that's what Paul calls the Philippian church to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or concede, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only uh, look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. This is how a family functions. If you live in a family, you know that you constantly have to put your own interest behind or before, uh, what am I saying? After somebody else's. That's what I do all day, every day. And I want to say something. I'm not trying to come across as harsh. In fact, I have to recognize that if there is something that I loved about New City Fellowship is that I saw this here. As a testimony, if my son lets me, he's somewhere else. 
Caleb. Uh, something that I loved about New City Fellowship is that I was in, I was I was engaged in a different way that I've I've never experienced, at least not in America. Uh, you guys treated us treated us as family. Um, to the point that I was given a car out of the blue. Um, you guys helped me move out of Herndon and into Manassas. Uh, Lewis and Andrew Gates helped me change my brakes, saved my, my family some money. They spent their Saturday morning with us. And all of that is easy to say, but all of that takes sacrifice. Some of you took hours from your time to come and help me. Megan had her loose time with Lewis that morning. Jeannie had her loose time with his brother, her brother that morning. And this is, this is awesome. We should continue to do this. And not only you have given me stuff or helped me like that, some of you have actually confronted me and told me uncomfortable stuff. And I need it. Some of you have addressed my preaching. Some of you have addressed uh, my lifestyle. Some of you have addressed uh, how I care for the church and the members of the church. And far from that being like a, a, a criticism of how dare you. No, I, we need each other. We need that. That's what a family does. My wife every day wakes up, and when I'm going to go to church, she's like, are you really going to wear that? Is there, it's like she, she loves me, and she actually cares enough to tell me, like, you should iron that shirt. Things like that. That's what a family does. If we are here and all we expect is to be pampered and loved on, but not confronted, then we're not in a family. As Christians, we must prioritize the messy and difficult people around us, not just our convenience. And most of those times is going to require time. It's going to require that you might need to sacrifice your plans or modify them or change them because people are more important than time. The last thing I want to say is that the Holy Spirit changes our priorities by putting people above possessions. None of the theologians I read disregarded or had any issues with the two previous points. But this coming one was the one that made everybody cringe. Acts 2.44 says, and all, and all who believed were together and, all, and had all things in common. And 45 says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 4 repeats this and gives us more detail. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and a great grace was upon them. Listen to this. There was not a needy person among them. As for many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold 
and laid it at the, at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed, distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is not human nature. I've been a Christian for 34 years. I have never seen anyone sell a house and give the proceeds to the church. Should we be the first ones? Just kidding. This is, it's clear that this is not something that the Holy Spirit, that it's, it's something that the Holy Spirit is doing. Because the human nature guards its possessions. It's not something we can do in our own strength. But I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit will move us to be extremely generous and to meet people's needs in a way that is risky. And again, I, I understand we need to be wise and we need to exercise wisdom when it comes to giving. But what I read in Acts is risky and radical generosity. What we see here is a picture of a group of people that were captured by the love of God, that they understood how much God loved them. They understood how much God gave for them, and they responded the same, in the same way. These people experienced a power like never before, and they were willing to do anything in response. In fact, if there's something that characterizes the people of, of the book of Acts, the Christians in the book of Acts, is that they were ready to do anything for the gospel. They were willing to give their stuff, their houses, their lives, their time. They were willing to do anything. And the call for us today is that our Christianity is not risky at all. We live a very safe and comfortable Christianity. We don't even know what it means to be persecuted. Just because somebody canceled you on Facebook, you're already saying you're persecuted? Come on. We don't even know what persecution really means. These people were arrested, mistreated, beaten, and killed for their faith. They were ready to give their lives and their possessions. And Paul explains to them, uh, to us, I'm sorry, what this experience is like. Philippians 3, 7, and 8 says, For, But whatever I gain, I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Listen to this. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This is literally the explanation of why the church in the first century was doing this. Because they were just rubbish. It was just trash. It was just stuff. Because the gospel and the Holy Spirit changes our priorities and helps us see people first, God first, not possessions. Our time, our agendas, our possessions, our own lives, our goals, 
our most precious stuff is all of that is rubbish compared to Jesus. And in a culture where church has earned the reputation of a place of exploitation, where churches are in the news because they were, sell, they were actually exploiting people and the pastors live a lavish, luxurious uh, lifestyle, a community that act- actively promotes and exercises radical generosity is probably one of the best ways to witness to our community. A church that provides for the poor and is radically generous would be a great witness. And this is for the people outside. But what we're reading here is to the people inside of the church. Galatians 6 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I want to call all of us today to re-examine our Christianity and ask the Holy Spirit to help us switch and reprioritize our priorities. We need to be devoted to prayer, to worship, to gathering, to evangelism, to the sacraments, to time for others, because that's what we are called to do. And I finish with this. Christianity can be summarized in two sentences, and this is the question that was asked of Jesus. Love God and love others. And the best way to show love to someone is to give. There is no other way to show love for other one than to give. And God gave us everything. John 3.16 says that God gave us his most beloved possession, his own son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We should rearrange our priorities because we have a God who is good. We have a God who loves us so much that he gave his only son. That he came to die for sinners. That he came to die for people who did not want to have anything to do with him. That deserved to be punished and and deserved and wanted to spend eternity without him. And God said, I want them back. I'm going to give them my son. I'm going to give myself to them. He came. He walked this earth. He was punished on our behalf. He was crucified. He died because we deserve to die. And he forgives us. He gives himself for us. And now through Jesus, because of what God did, because of his love for us, we now have eternal life. We can have peace. We can have the love of God that makes us his own children. And we're going to spend eternity with him in perfection. And that must drive us to respond in faith. So I want to I finish by um, praying and asking us to just reconsider what is it that we need to examine in light of what Jesus has done for us. How can I demonstrate a life that is generous, that prioritizes People above my time, people above my positions, 
How can I prioritize my community above my own convenience? Today, I would like for us to spend some time examining ourselves and not try to do it in our own strength or out of guilt, but in response to what Jesus has done for us in the cross. So as I pray and the band comes back in, I'm going to ask you to spend some time and ask God to show you, to show us, how can we better sacrifice, give for others and rearrange our priorities. Dear God, we thank you for everything you've done for us. Thank you for giving yourself, your son, for us because you loved us. And Lord, I pray that in response to this love, we can also give everything up for you. I pray that we would be uh, able to say with Paul that we count everything as a loss. That for your sake, God, we count everything as rubbish so that we may gain you. Holy Spirit, we can't do this on our own. Holy Spirit, we are selfish. We are attached to things, attached to our goals, attached to our agendas. And I pray that through your power, you help us break these patterns and rearrange our priorities. We ask that you forgive us for being selfish. And I thank you for your forgiveness because you are a good God who forgives and who not only forgives but erases our sin and separates it from us. Lord, I pray that as a church, it would be a church that is known for its radical hospitality, radical generosity, and that we, should be, we would be a witness to this community. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.